Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. And it turns out Russia was a very important player as a source of refined products. It provided you know, a lot of diesel fuel and other fuels like that to Europe. And so if half of Russia's product exports shrink, that tightens the whole system. And so, you know, refining is very tight. And, you know, we're still at that period where I can tell you that in, in Washington and in Houston, a lot of concern, if you have a hurricane that comes along and knocks out a refinery or two, then we're back in a really difficult situation in terms of uh, gasoline supply. Dan Jurgen is a world-recognized expert on energy. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and a frequent commentator on global energy issues. He joins me today to talk about what is happening in energy markets and where they might be headed in the months ahead. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Dan, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is a real honor to have you on the show. Well, I'm very pleased to be on with you, Michael, because among other things, I'm a great fan of the show. Well, thank you. Dan, I want to start by mentioning a couple of the many books you have written and ask you a couple of questions about your most recent book. But I want to start with The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. So I read it when it was first published in the early 1990s, I think, right? Early 1990s? That's true. Yes. And I thought at the time that it was a terrific book, certainly among one of the best books that I've ever read. And for for my listeners, it won the Pulitzer Prize. And I just wanted to say, and I wanted you to know this, that my youngest son, who was trained as an economist, just read it in the last couple of months. And 
he promptly concluded that it was the best book that he has ever read. So I think it's pretty cool that he and I read it 30 years apart and we bonded over it just a few weeks ago. Just wanted to let you know that. That's wonderful. I really, uh, you know, that means a lot. And uh, it is interesting that the book is just has its life of its own. It's like a child who grew up, uh, you know, moved to the house, went to college and just goes on. And so the fact that it connected with you then and it connects with your son now is very meaningful. You know, I actually looked looked at it on Amazon, and it's still selling. It's still selling very well. So, wow, that doesn't happen very often, right? Yeah. Dan, your most recent book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. And I want to ask you a couple of questions about the paperback version, which came out in September of last year. So in the paperback version, you wrote a sentence that says that Ukraine is the issue that is going to blow up between Russia and the West. You wrote at that time that what form that that blow up would take was not clear, but you said it's absolutely clear that we're headed towards a blow up. You wrote that a full a full five months before the Russian invasion. What led you to that judgment? Well, actually, it was, you know, the original, when I did the original book, um, which had come out a year earlier, I had really been thinking the same the same thing, and it was just looking at the standoff between Putin, between Russia and Ukraine, the tension over it, and that Putin refused to accept that Ukraine was a separate country, that Ukrainians were a separate people. And you could just feel the tension kind of building up over that. And it, it just, one of those, you know, that this was, this was going to be what was going to blow up, because you could just see the trend of it really going back to the gas crises in like 2006 and it was just piling up and the whole battle where Putin did not want to see Ukraine orient towards the West and that, you know, he, he regarded what happened in 2014, you know, when there was the upheaval and uh, his favorite candidate fled the country as president and he took Crimea and it looked to me like just Crimea was just the first uh, step in what was going to happen. Right. Dan, the other thing you wrote in your paperback was about the the risk of a crisis in the South China Sea, surrounding the South China Sea. Put that in the context of Taiwan today. Right. Well, first, it's interesting, Michael, because, of course, in, when you were in the, in the agency, part of your job was to kind of look down the road and say, you know, what is going to happen? Where's the point of conflict? And I came to really focus on the South China Sea, and obviously now the so much focus is on Taiwan, but the South China Sea is where U.S. and Chinese ships come close to colliding with each other because China claims the South China Sea as its own territory. No one else recognizes it, and China has turned uh, islands, or even where there weren't islands, created islands and turned them into stationary aircraft carriers. So there's just, once again, you can see, as with Russia, Ukraine, that there's just a fundamental disagreement and a clash, in, in a sense, between national interests and security interests between two sides. And uh, now, of course, we see it uh, accentuating with Taiwan, with Xi Jinping making his great mission to bring Taiwan into, into Chinese sovereignty and just not recognizing that it's a separate country. And it does have some parallels to uh, 
Putin and Ukraine. It does. It absolutely does. So, Dan, Ukraine is is clearly one of the factors that's impacting on global energy markets. And I want to spend some time talking about those markets. You wrote a number of weeks ago that we're in an energy crisis as serious as those that we suffered in the past, including the two oil shocks in the 1970s. Oil prices have eased a bit since then, but I wonder if you would still say that that we're in a crisis. I, I think so. You know, in saying we're in a crisis, one, uh, I mean, my fervent hope is I'm wrong, that uh, that it will ease. And what we see now that's a new factor of central banks, which will become among the deciders on uh, oil prices because of raising interest rates and the question of whether we're going to have a recession. But when you look at the basic markets today, they're very tight. There's very little additional supply anywhere. And if you have any kind of disruption, and we're living through a disruption right now because of Ukraine, it can send prices uh, just up again. There's just very little give. You know, when President uh, Biden went to Saudi Arabia, and there was this kind of expectation that Saudi Arabia is this great gusher of oil that it could provide. There's not a lot of extra oil anywhere in the world right now. And Chinese demand has actually been repressed because of the COVID lockdown. So if they come out of that, that adds more. And this is all, of course, in the context of uh, Europe announcing that it's going to ban Russian crude oil in December and Putin counterattacking and launching a, a second front in the, in the war the Ukraine war, in a gas war in, in Europe. So I think it's still highly risky. It's good to see prices down, but that can turn pretty quickly. So Dan, what are the, what are the characteristics of the crisis, you know, from a kind of a macro perspective? What, what defines it? Well, what defines it? I mean, it's, you know, first of all, it's hard to you'd say it's pretty amazing to have a crisis because just a little over two years ago, oil prices were not zero. They were actually negative. And now they're, you know, they're down, but they're still around $100 a, a barrel. What defines it is very uh, tight supplies. I think it's basically, you know, you mentioned uh, the prize before and it has hundreds of characters in that book. But sometimes I think the, the most of two most important characters, one is named supply and one is named demand. <laughs> and, and that's where we are um, right now, that demand has been quite strong around the world. Uh, and there's been what I call preemptive underinvestment in oil and gas resources over the last few years so that the supply, the available supply, really hasn't kept up with demand. You don't want to run you know, a global oil market at you know, at virtual capacity because it leaves no room for any kind of accidents or any other kind of events. So I would say it's a combination of supply and demand with the overlay of politics and geopolitics. And Dan, you've written that the market has been transformed from previously a global market into one that is fragmented. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, it really goes back to the end of the Cold War and the uh, end of the Soviet Union. And, you know, Russia had always been a big producer of oil and gas, and it was integrated much more into the global system. And Russian energy flowed uh, out of Russia, uh, capital and technology flowed into it, and it was a market that ran on the on grounds of efficiency. I mean, people living on the East Coast of the United States would be surprised to know that a fair amount of Russian oil was coming to the East Coast to run in U.S. refineries because it made the refineries more efficient. 
So people basically thought about efficiency, just that these markets would be smoothly running. But now that's, that's changed. Russia, Putin has inadvertently or maybe intentionally, well, probably inadvertently, because I think he underestimated the reaction to Ukraine, that Russia is, is being shut off from the Western economy. And Russian oil, you know, the Europeans are going to say they're not going to accept Russian crude oil, and then they're not going to accept Russian products like gasoline, petrol, and they want to back away from what was a heavy dependence on Russian natural gas as well. So it's a fragmented market, and Russia's markets will be in Asia, not in Europe. Europe is its most important market. You also have, of course, Iranian oil that's constrained in the market, Venezuelan oil. So it's just, it's a market in which politics now looms much more than it did in what we maybe will look back on and say it was the, the age of globalization. You also wrote, and you mentioned gas, you also wrote that this crisis, that previous crisis is focused on oil, but this crisis encompasses a broader range of fuels, even nuclear. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, in the 70s and the other oil crises, and the other crises, there were oil crises. This actually started with coal. This energy crisis did not start on February 24th with the invasion of Ukraine. It started in the second half of 2021 when there was the recovery from COVID and lockdowns and you know economies were really starting to move. And first, there was not enough coal, so China switched to natural gas, LNG. That created shortages in Europe, so Europe bid up the price. So it reverberated from coal to natural gas to oil and nuclear because Russia has a rather dominant position in the nuclear fuel cycle, value chain providing nuclear fuels. And so, you know, it's like we just it's sort of like, you know, we took for granted that Russians uh, and the U.S. would cooperate on the International Space Station. We took it for granted that on these kind of commodities that there would be the same kind of cooperation would just go on and didn't really worry about the security aspects of it. But now people are sure going to worry about the security aspects and question of dependence on Russia, particularly as Russia pivots more and more towards that relationship with China. So Dan, you said something really important, I think, a few minutes ago. You talked about a decline in investment in traditional energy sources as constraining supply being part of the problem here. What's the source of that underinvestment? Well, there were, I think there were two things. One is actually returns on investing in oil and gas were not very good because in 2014 you had a price collapse and then you had a second price collapse with COVID lockdowns. The other thing was the rise of what's called ESG investing, environment, social governance, where people were saying, well, we really shouldn't invest in oil and gas. We should put pressure on financial institutions and, and investment firms not to invest. And so there was just less capital going into replenishing oil supplies and gas supplies. And one of the things about oil and gas is they are depleting resources. So every year, you know, your stock of production goes down maybe 5% and you have to replace it. And we just haven't been replacing it. And that's why these markets got so tight. And in reaction, I think, really to those two things, and I think now there's kind of, what a change you see. Uh, you see the German chancellor flying off to Senegal to encourage LNG, liquefied natural gas investments in Senegal. I mean, it's a real change. I've seen, uh, we do a big conference every year in Houston, and saw all these Europeans there looking around for natural gas from the U.S., LNG. And that, by the way, Michael, has been a very important development because the Europeans now 
are looking to the United States for their energy security. Uh, in the new map, I, I write about a lot about the you know the shale revolution and the political and geopolitical consequences of it, and how it's really been a very important factor. And now the Europeans are looking, saying, you know, we really want to have substantial supplies of natural gas from the United States, and they're counting on it as part of their energy security. And this is all part of, of something else that you've written about at length, which is that deepening great power rivalry is a, is a really important player in, in this energy markets that we live in today. You know, I, I struggled in the new map to find a way to describe it, and I came up with a term. It's not a perfect term, but a, the WTO consensus, the World Trade Organization consensus, the notion that when China opened up, joined the WTO, that there's a very high degree of integration in the global economy, including a much higher degree of integration than anybody in probably the United States and maybe China, most anybody actually recognizes. I mean, the fact that when COVID hit, suddenly medical supplies, you know, masks, we have to get them from China. You know, uh, many of our medicines come from there. There's this high degree of integration. And it was all, we were in this, we were all in this together. We were all going to benefit from a growing integrated world economy. You know, I remember once somebody in Silicon Valley saying to me, if you're going to do a startup in Silicon Valley, you have to think about your China strategy too. Well, no, no longer that. And, and I think that lasted, and I don't know what, what you think, Michael, but my feeling is it lasted till about 2015 is when things started to change. Of course, it started to change when Xi came to power in China in 2012, 2013. But by 2015, I could see I remember asking a senator, do you remember when you changed your mind about China? And kind of it was before Trump was elected. And now, you know, one of the the WTO consensus is gone. No one wants to claim authority for it. And now it is the term great power competition, which, of course, has echoes of uh, pre-World War One, which is disconcerting. And the sense that, you know, strategic rivalry and it's in the language of the Chinese and it's the language of the U.S., Michael, I don't know if you have a feeling if you, as to when you felt that, that change in attitude, but I would say around 2015. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Dan Jurgen. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Dan, to answer your question, I think views about China changed as they started to turn their economic power into political influence around the world. And when they started to change what was a focus entirely on economic growth to a focus on you know, regaining their, their lost influence in the world. And it, it really began for me at the end of the, at the end of the, of the Hu Jintao period when the national security team in China came to Hu and said, you know, we got to start 
got to start using our power, using our influence. And he gave them a little bit of room, and that was the South China Sea. And then when Xi Jinping came in, he gave them a lot of room. And I think it's that moment, right, that really began to change views in the West. Yeah. And that would have been, you know, in that sort of... Yep, exactly. That, ...around that period. And of course, that's, you know, a, you know, one of the things that went back in the new map and exactly when did the, the Belt and Road get developed and, you know, that uh, China launched it at, uh, in, at Nur Sultan University in, uh, in Kazakhstan. And then, you know, invoking kind of what you're saying, invoking China's vocation as an imperial power. And, you know, and I guess in Belt and Road, it certainly became an embodiment of, was it just an economic uh, construction, this thing, or was it indeed a political influence? Right. But, you know, that's where we are today. And, of course, the great problem for statecraft is going to, now, is going to be how to manage the relationship between, you know, the U.S. and China in a way that, you know, stays competitive but doesn't become more than competitive. And if I can say one place where it really showed up, we just did a study on, on copper because copper is the essential mineral metal that's necessary for net zero carbon. And it turns out that it's even more concentrated than oil. And 38% of copper just comes from two countries, Chile and Peru. But what's striking is that China has such a dominance in that supply, in that whole supply chain, as it does in so many of the other minerals. And, you know, I, I think that that is, you know, there's a sense that you know, the, the geopolitical competition between the United States and China is going to ex certainly extend into this area of strategic uh, minerals. Yeah. Back to the energy markets. You know, we talked talked about how there's been some easing in oil prices and certainly the same is true of gasoline prices. But one of the things that struck me when prices were at their peaks is that oil had been that high before, but gasoline prices had not. And so it seemed to me that the gasoline market was even more tight than the oil market. Is that the case? And if so, why? Or was that the case? And if so, why? Yes, exactly. So, you know, oil, crude oil, you can't do anything with crude oil. It has to be refined. And it turns out that as tight as the crude oil supply is in the world, and the technical term is that there's such limited spare capacity that can be put into production, What's even tighter is refining capacity, and which is because refiners have been shut down because they were not economic or for regulatory reasons, or there's pressure to turn them into bioenergy facilities. And it turns out Russia was a very important player as a source of refined products. It provided you know, a lot of diesel fuel and other fuels like that to Europe. And so if half of Russia's product exports shrink, that tightens the whole system. And so, you know, refining is very tight. And, you know, we're still at that period where I, I can tell you that in, in, in Washington and in Houston, a lot of concern. If you have a hurricane that comes along and knocks out a refinery or two, uh, then we're back in a really difficult situation in terms of uh, gasoline supply. So, Dan, it's exactly where I wanted to go next is you've written that the crisis could get worse. So if you could talk about, you know, besides hurricanes, you know, what could make it worse? What could that look like? How bad could it get? Well, I think, again, I'd like to put it in the context of uh, not only oil, but natural gas. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, Vladimir Putin laid out his strategy about fracturing the, the Ukraine coalition 
the Western Coalition uh, at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum in June. He said, you know, high prices will create uh, social turmoil, high energy prices, social turmoil, which will lead to populist parties coming to power. And as he put it, a change of elites in Europe. In other words, fracture the coalition. And he's manipulating natural gas supplies to do that now. Russian gas supplies to Europe are down about 70% from their normal level. And Russia was providing, well, 38% of Europe's natural gas before then. So there, you know, you're seeing particularly Germany scrambling, talking now. The chancellor talked about maybe not shutting down their last nuclear power plants, which were slated to shut down. Fear of rationing and the equivalent natural gas prices in Europe now, it would be like, if you do it on energy equivalent, it'd be like oil at $380 a barrel. Mm. I mean, this is, so there's where you could really see uh, the crisis coming. And it's a race right now. And the thing for people to watch is, are the Europeans able to fill storage that they need to put gas into storage for the winter? Can they get there? Or is Putin not going to prevent them from doing that? And they're just going everywhere in the world to find it. They've restarted coal plants that were supposed to be shut down. So, and of course, the crisis in Europe, rationing in Europe, that would reverberate. It would affect uh, all the energy markets and would affect the global economy. I mean, when you have the economics minister of Germany warning of a Lehman Brothers style contagion, if this thing uh, goes bad, uh, that tells you that uh, there's a lot of risk there. Yeah, what do you think he, what do you think he meant by that? That was a really interesting thing that he said. Well, I think he was saying that a deep economic crisis in Europe would affect the global economy in a, as severely as the, as happened in in, uh, in 2008, I think. That, in other words, a really grave, something that goes beyond a recession. And, you know, they're already making plans for rationing gas in, in Europe. On the oil side, you know, you have a calendar now. You have... Europe saying we are going to no longer take Russian crude oil in December. So we have to get, Europe has to get its oil somewhere else. They've also, here's, here's a real twist, and this is a clash between Europe and the United States. The Europeans are, put a, want to put a ban on insurance and services for tankers that are carrying Russian oil. That means there would be a huge hole in the market. And uh, India, where would India get its oil right now? So the U.S. has responded with the idea of a price cap, that somehow you could just get everybody to agree that they'll pay no more than, say, $40 or $50 for Russian oil. I think it's going to be very difficult to make something like that work. And so I think in this kind of dislocation that's coming is also uh, part of the seeds for this crisis getting worse. And obviously, so much of it right now has to do with the war grinding on in Ukraine. And I guess the geopolitical question, right, that flows from everything you just talked about is the ability of the United States to hold the the, the anti-Putin coalition together, right, when, when Western Europe is facing this kind of stress. Right, exactly, because Putin's strategy, I mean, he's, you know, he is one leader who really understands the energy markets. I mean, you know, people who would meet with him would say would be you know, amazed by his detailed knowledge. So he knows what he's doing. And he, you know, he's already, look what's happened in Italy. There is Mario Draghi, who, who went by train to Kiev to affirm Italy's support for Ukraine. He's been now forced out by one of the right-wing parties. And so, I mean, I think that's his strategy. I mean, there, you know, you think about the miscalculations Putin made. He under, 
uh, he overestimated his army, he underestimated the Ukrainians. He thought the Europeans would say, we're so dependent on Russian energy, this is terrible, but let's keep buying. And he thought, and this goes to what you just said, Michael, the U.S. after Afghanistan, after January 6th, just can't get its act together. And so it's been quite remarkable to hold this uh, coalition together, actually, you know, and have it be as successful as it has been. And But, you know, I think as the economic hardship increases, then, you know, pocketbook issues start to, to come into it. The party that brought down Draghi said that it's terrible that Italians have to face a terrible choice between paying electricity or buying food. And, you know, and I think that's uh, Putin's calculation that this is not a, a short game, but this is a, a medium game. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Dan, let's shift to policy here. How would you characterize the administration's efforts to deal with the crisis? It's been a shock for the administration because it came in committed to one thing, which was its climate agenda and moving as fast as it can. And, you know, even though a very divided country, thinking it could do that. What it didn't think about was an energy crisis. And already last November, suddenly you had the administration, the Secretary of Energy and the president saying, to domestic industry, can you produce more? Because they were worried about gasoline prices going into the this November's election. Right, right. And so I think it's been hard, it's been challenging them for them to pivot. They have very little dialogue with the oil industry. It, I mean, contrast to Germany, where the economics minister, who's a leader of the Green Party, is in intense conversation and coordination with the energy companies. It doesn't happen in this country. So I think the, it's, you know, the administration is trying to go down two different paths at the same time, and certainly not a smooth path, because, you know, they came in not wanting to have anything to do with this industry that employs 10 and a half million Americans. You know, they reached out to the Saudis, obviously, the president's trip there, and did not get that much of a boost of, of oil production. OPEC Plus just you know announced a very small increase in production. There was an outreach to Venezuela, which, quite frankly, I didn't understand because Venezuela is really not in a position to, to increase their production much. But they haven't really, they haven't been really to put a lot of additional oil in the market. The fact was that there is not a lot of spare capacity, as it's called in the Middle East, to put into the, into the market. And I think 
as we said before, there was this overestimation. Obviously, there were other reasons for that trip, too, having to do with Iran, re-engaging with the Middle East. There's not been much of an outreach to Canada, to Alberta, which is, you know, a lot closer to the United States. But, you know, and there's, you know, some dialogue with the domestic industry, but not. And the one place in the world, you know, you say, well, where's production increasing? The one place in the world where production is increasing is the United States. The United States will add more new production this year than all the rest of the world combined. Mm. And without that, I mean, the you know, we, the position would be even even worse. You know, so I think it's just been it's been complicated for them to to how to handle this. And you know, I think they're probably right now seeing gasoline prices coming down, a source of great relief, one less thing to worry about going into the November elections. But as you pointed out, you know, something could happen to certainly reverse reverse that, right? You talked about outreach to Canada. Is there more that the administration could be doing here? I think that the that the most important thing is to understand the logistics of, of supply, how you move supply around. And that's, you know, and it's kind of a nitty-gritty thing. You know, where where are the bottlenecks? What can be done? You know, there are actually supply chain problems that are affecting domestic U.S. oil production. What can be resolved about that? And the perennial questions around permitting of getting, you know, just getting things done and, and getting them built. So I think there's some more, but, you know, but the focus of the administration is, you know, much more on it's still on its climate objectives. But I mean, it's been a, I think it's been a real challenge for, for them, you know, just take the president's trip to Saudi Arabia. That was a pretty, you know, whatever. I mean, there were other reasons for doing it, as we said, but clearly oil was very central to it. But right now, they're being very careful to say there's not a recession, but the one thing that will take the pressure off the oil energy supply is, of course, a recession, which is not a very good way to solve energy problems. Right. So, Dan, let's look a little longer term here. We have to move away from carbon and toward renewables. And I'm wondering how you think about whether there is a transition that you can envision that can get us where we need to be on climate without serious economic disruptions, or are we too late for that? What do you think? Very interesting papers written by an economist related to the Peterson Institute in Washington, that if you try and push the the net 50 goals, net zero goals, 50 into, into 2030, you're going to have economic disruptions. And I think there is some second, you know, further thoughts about that. And and I think the other side of it is, I mean, the direction is clear. The direction is absolutely clear towards decarbonization, lower carbon. But how fast can you do it? And I think that's why we did this, you know, this recent study, this new study on copper, because you need a lot of minerals. The International Energy Agency said we're moving from an, a fuel-intensive to a mineral-intensive energy system. So you have to build a lot of things. And you know, an electric car, for instance, uses two and a half times more copper than a conventional car. So you really have to look at the ability to provide the supply that's necessary for that. And I think we're going to find that that's going to be more challenging. So I think it's recognizing that, you know, that this is a longer process. One of the things I did in the new map is I just looked at, okay, everybody talks about an energy transition. What is an energy transition? And I looked at all the other energy transitions. They unfolded over a century. 
And they weren't really transitions, they were additions. Coal oil discovered in 1859 overtakes coal in the 1960s as the world's number one energy source. Today, 2022, uh, the world uses three times as much coal as it did in the 1960s, so it's energy addition. So to say that you're going to change the entire energy foundations of what today is a is an 88 trillion dollar world economy and do it in you know in 28 years, it's a big, big, big challenge. And I think we're also starting to see there's a new north-south divide. We're developing countries that say, well, we have other imperatives. We India's building a $60 billion natural gas supply system so that they can use less coal. Well, that's very different than you know what the European Union wants to do. And I, I hear from a lot of developing countries saying, you, the West, cannot impose your notions of how to do it when we have to deal with poverty and economic growth too. So I think that is becoming a further complication. So the direction is clear, but you know, it's one thing to have a PowerPoint, but it's another thing to make things happen in this real complicated world in which we live. Exactly. Dan, let me ask you one last question. So what got you interested in energy all these years ago? Well, I think it was, you know, it was actually, I had a postdoctoral grant at Harvard. I was supposed to be, actually be working in the political economy of U.S. Soviet trade, and that got less and less interesting. And then energy just exploded. And I thought, I just became totally fascinated because it, it involves everything from uh, geopolitics to markets to, you know, technological innovation. It's sort of an all-encompassing thing. And I just, you know, just found it endlessly fascinating. And it never, it never stands still. It's always changing. So it's just always very challenging to try and make sense and see where things are going. So, I mean, I just found it, you know, you know, I didn't set out to say, oh, this is what I'm going to focus on. This is what I want to do. But it's just so fascinating and so important. Yeah. Just to maybe finish where we where we start, when I when I began at the agency in 1980, it was obviously, you know, the Iran-Iraq war and the, the, the second oil crisis as a result of that. And I was working on energy issues all those years ago, too. So uh, it's just a nice way to finish our talk here. Dan, thanks. Thanks for joining us. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you very much, Michael. You're welcome. That was Dan Jurgen. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. 
I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.